Right, okay, so here we go. It's the first um, Muslim Pride podcast, um, the podcast that aims to show people or at least tell people a bit more about what it means to be a Muslim today. Um, So today on the line I've got Zia Chowdhury, who is the author of um, Just Your Average Muslim, but I'll let Zia introduce himself. Hi, yes, my name is Zia Chowdhury. I am the author of Just Your Average Muslim, but um, aside from that I've been a barrister for over 20 years now, 24 years, and that really is my profession, that's my day job. Um, And in the last 10 or 15 years, I've been involved in quite a bit of interfaith work. And that sort of contact with others led me to think more about my own religion and ultimately led me down the path that um, prompted me to write the book. Um, And that's something that now is a bit of an introduction of mine or a platform from which I can hopefully address uh, various issues affecting Muslims um, in my own way. Great, thanks Sia. So um, where I wanted to start with this week, um, and I guess Facebook and all the front pages have been dominated by Donald Trump um, calling for a ban on Muslims to enter the US. So what do you think on that? Do you think that would be a good idea if Muslims could no longer enter America? Well, it's it sets a very dangerous precedent, doesn't it, if um, a world leader, because after all, he is vying to be uh, arguably the most powerful leader on the planet. And if he manages to set a precedent banning any community from entering his country, can you imagine what other countries might do in terms of following suit? Uh, Obviously, this week, you know, it's been the Muslims who are concerned and rightly so and offended by what he had to say and a lot of Americans and a lot of non-Muslims generally have also been concerned and offended by what he has to say and but the reality is that it's not just going to affect Muslims because ultimately you know where do you draw the line Muslims today Jews tomorrow black people the day after and I think that it's uh, the kind of politics that you know, we'd hoped we'd moved away from. And this is one of the things, you know, you constantly hear about the the lessons of, you know, Nazism. Uh, uh, you know, we in Britain do remember, uh, you know, quite regularly uh, the war and its aftermath. And surely the whole point of, of such remembrance is to learn lessons from these episodes. And it was a very dark chapter in human history, what Hitler did, especially to the Jews. And yet here we have somebody who seems to be, you know, taking some uh, initial steps down the same sort of path. Sure. And I guess that that's one way to look at it. And in Europe, at least, we have um, our history to draw upon. And, you know, US history sits with that as well. But what about just his statements? Do you not think perhaps what he's saying is a good thing? At least he's voicing a debate and he's starting people. I mean, at least this week, I've seen more and more people speaking up. Um, in defence of Islam. So perhaps, do you think he's serving a bit of a purpose and he knows what he's doing and he's he's encouraging a debate? Um, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And I also agree that, you know, as a result of his comments, there's been a lot of, you know, positive um, reaction by people. But, you know, look at the people who support him. They suddenly feel vindicated in their prejudices because their leader has actually come out and articulated this. And, you know, he'll say things about uh, political correctness, not holding him back. So that emboldens other people as well who hitherto 
felt that you know they they were they didn't have the voice but now they're actually being told it's okay you can say these things in public and at a time when you know islamophobic attacks are on the rise uh, particularly in america you would have thought that the sensible politician is the one who tries to take the sting out of things rather than you know pouring fuel on this fire and that's why i think he's so dangerous you know you can have you know we're used to them in the muslim world you're you know your sort of crazed religious leaders with the big beards coming out with inflammatory statements um but when somebody wears a nice expensive suit and doesn't have any sort of you know dictatorial uh, background and is just portraying himself as a legitimate politician and he's coming out with this kind of stuff uh, as i say it's, you know it's it's something that uh, the the people who follow him you know said they certainly regard it as as um serious and encouraging for their prejudices uh, and you know you can imagine let's you know let's just look at america given their concerns over the last you know few years about the amount of um anti black um violence particularly by the police and you've got you know campaigns saying that this has simply got to stop now can you imagine if a politician spoke up and said well you know I'm I'm sick of this political correctness and came out with comments against the African American community you know there'd be absolute uh, uh, uproar and uh, I think that that's really you know what's prompted uh, the objection to what Trump has said but my concern is that there are you know millions of people who actually support him and you mentioned it just now about having a, a leader or a figurehead so um this is actually a question um from Casper who sent sent this in he said well who should the muslim world look to or who does the world look to as a muslim leader or a, a muslim role model who could kind of counter these sorts of um comments from from politicians um as a politician there are arguably very few if any you know world leaders who are impressive in the muslim world or who have any sort of real you know stature um i think that's something that's lacking you know you have individuals in in whichever country but you know at best they might be able to keep their own country going sadly too much of the muslim world has been blighted by undemocratic leaders you know whether they be military uh you know dictators or, or you know their ilk and and so you know in terms of political role models we seem to have very few at present there are religious scholars and leaders who do say sensible things but you know their appeal seems to be different it would be nice to find somebody who can appeal on both a religious level and a political level and and is therefore you know in my view a true leader because for me the ideal muslim leader wouldn't just be somebody who was good at politics uh, uh, but and wouldn't be somebody who's just you know knew his religion inside out you have to have a a combination of talents and i would think that probably at the moment you know that's that's lacking but then you've got to look at the causes you know the reasons why it's lacking in so many muslim countries there isn't a you know a, an educational infrastructure that leads to the best people getting to the top and that's why you have you know military uh, generals and the like who you know decide that 
in a coup that they'll take over because they're not impressed with you know what they've seen um, before them. But that's not the way to to lead a country. And even if that particular military leader is successful, you know that's not. There's no institution building. There's no there's no system in place. It's all reliant on that individual. So we need to have infrastructure. We need to have systems in place where there's a, a whole education system. I mean, you know, the reality is that you know if Western leaders you know drop dead, there's a whole system behind them that carries on. You know, the running, the orderly running of the country. And unfortunately, in Muslim countries, that's lacking. So there needs to be investment in education. Mm-hmm. There needs to be this concern that they have to do what's best for their country and not best for the, the leaders or their families. And and why why do you think that is? So a lot of people will talk about Sharia law and often one or two things will get pulled out of Sharia law as, a, as, as an example of why it doesn't work to set up a system. For example, you know, crime and punishment. And I guess from your background as well as a barrister, why do you think that is? Do you think that Islam as a faith struggles or is unable to set up a a system beyond the individual? Uh, I think recently it has struggled, but if you look throughout history, you know, um, Muslim countries were very well run for a long time um, because they were flexible. They were, you know, they were able to adapt their faith to different cultures. And that's something that's lost at the moment where you were given this impression that there's only one sort of Islam and it's a, you know, it will solve the world's problems. And yet we don't even know what, what the problems are that we're attempting to solve. Uh, and education is the starting point because it gives you an insight into the difficulties, the problems that modern society is posing for you. Now, once you've clarified what those problems are, then you can go about attempting to come up with solutions. And it's at that stage that you look at your religion and think, well, okay, this is the way we've been doing things in the past, but is that necessarily, um, you know, the way we should do them now or in the future? And that's where the whole argument about Sharia, for example, you know, I would take a very different approach to it and say that it, it, it isn't set in stone. The way we're led to believe, you know, a lot of non-Muslims understandably think that Sharia is set in stone, but a lot of Muslims as well act as if Sharia is set in stone, whereas it isn't. You know, you've got certain basics, but beyond those, you know, your creator has given you more than enough ability and talent and, you know, brain power to come up with solutions and adapt your faith. That doesn't mean jettisoning the basic principles. It just means adapting it to make it relevant. And that's where Sharia, for example, you know, the way it's been codified and people act like it's it's immutable. Well, that's not how it was meant to be. It was meant to adapt to changing cultures and circumstances. Uh, and that's something that we need to, you know, to, to grasp. And so, so you say that, um, there used to be societies that operated very well Islamically, and, and I completely agree. But what what has changed? Why all of a sudden are we not comfortable with an Islamic state, or um, or, or is that right? Are we are we comfortable with it at all? I think to have a truly Islamic uh, state, you know, you'd have to, uh, you know, one for the 21st century, you'd have to be on a level where you can operate with other states in the 21st century. You know, you have to be up to speed with technology, with education, and we're not. And so, you you know, at best, and this is where you have these <clears throat> movements that spring up and there's this desire to go back to this purity of the faith. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a utopian ideal. What they should be doing is, you know, 
practical um, solution finding and that has got to look you know be very much rooted in the 21st century it can't be going back to this idyllic time when everything was perfect because what we're led to believe is that looking everything was fine in the prophet's time so if we only manage to recreate that there won't be any difficulty but the prophet was living in a different time in a different place and he had a different set of problems to contend with we need to, you know, address the issues that we've got. Now, of course, answering the question, well, why haven't we been able to do so is a very complicated one because there's been you know, hundreds of years of colonization of many Muslim countries. There's been, uh, you know, outside interference, but there's also been the, I mean, and I, I've often used the phrase that, you know, you can criticize those who colonize but you should also ask questions of those who allow themselves to become colonizable because clearly you know there were weaknesses in muslim countries that allowed outsiders to come and intervene and interfere now one of those weaknesses was that there came a point when quite frankly muslims stopped thinking you know they'd had centuries of great scholars who'd you know understood the faith and written tomes about it explaining every last detail and then they get us to a stage where people think well that's it all the thinking's been done all we need to do now is go back to those books and we'll, um, we'll find the solutions now i think that's been one of the major problems for muslims to contend with over the last few centuries and so now you've got a stage where the actual religious thinking you know hasn't been updated for a long time. Couple that with a lack of education in Muslim countries, a lack of this technical expertise. You know, we're playing catch up on so many levels. And of course, for many Muslim countries, their um, autonomy has uh, you know, only come about in the last few years, relatively speaking. You know, it's the last 50 years that a lot of Muslim countries have managed to run their own affairs. And so to expect them suddenly to deliver on the world stage is probably asking too much until they sort out some basics in their own societies. I'm, I'm really interested about what you just said about the thinking has been done. Um, and it's almost as if it's stopped and we're, or Muslims as a whole are nostalgic to a time that can never be recreated. Um, now, why do you think the thinking has stopped? Um, and who is, who is it going to be who's going to move the thinking forward again? Um, because it's quite clear that there's a task at hand, but we've got a, a problem. I think it needs the, the religious scholars to understand that going back to, you know, however great those works were of scholars in the past, to keep on going back, you are not going to get solutions to problems that, you know, that we're facing now. You know, for a long time, the world developed uh, you know, in terms of technology, at a very slow pace. So, you know, one can imagine that things probably weren't much different in a village in the Middle East in the 11th century um, than they were in the 12th century. Uh, and so for them, it was understandable that, you know, there was a, a standard interpretation of texts and uh, standard solutions to problems because the problems weren't changing that much. Now, you just have to look at our modern life. You know, in the last 20 years, Let's just look at how mobile phones have changed our lives. And we've gone from, a, a you know, just in our lifetimes from having nothing uh, in, by way of mobile phone technology to now carrying around computers in our pockets and being able to communicate with people on the other side of the world. Now, that's, you know, that just shows you the, the, the rate of change. Now, to, to suggest that 
in such a fast-changing modern society, the answer to religious concerns, you know, is to be found in books that are a thousand years old. That just doesn't make sense to me. Mm, mm. And so you've got to, but to be able to, for the, for these scholars to be able to, you know, deal with this problem, they've firstly got to recognize that there is a problem. And then they've also got to appreciate, and this is something, again, the Muslims have been very guilty of. You know, we, you know, in the, in the Quran, for example, there's the uh, reference to ulema, and we understand the ulema to be religious scholars and that's uh, you know they're to be revered and respected and and looked up to and yet if you look in the quran itself the word is referring to those people who take in their surroundings and they you know god exhorts them to you know look at the way the rain falls i you know look at the look at the weather patterns you know look at meteorology he exhorts people to look at the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, to explore all this. So what's he talking about other than scientists? So this is in our holy book. That Listen, look around and learn, be scientists. And those are the people who are referred to as the ulema. And yet we've now restricted knowledge to mean just religious knowledge. And there are plenty of Muslims out there who will lead you to believe that the only worthwhile knowledge is religious knowledge. And so you've got a very narrow band of people who fall into that category. Now, you know, even if let's assume for a moment they have got that religious knowledge, and I think that's, you know, open for a debate anyway, mm. but even if they have got it, you know, how are they able to apply that in the modern world? So if, for example, on a topic such as um, genetic engineering and human embryology, you want to legislate, the religion is only going to take you so far. You can only do it effectively if you also have the relevant scientific expertise, up-to-date scientific knowledge. And this is where, you know, if you restrict yourself to ah, the only worthwhile knowledge is religious knowledge, well, then you're, you are making your religion irrelevant for that particular issue. Mm. And so this is the thing that you've got to understand what the issues are and understand how to tackle them. And an element of tackling them is the religious ethical approach. But also there's got to be a lot of scientific um, expertise, which is basically down to secular education. So you, you talk about the ulema, which is probably a new concept for a number of people, Muslims alike, I, I didn't really know about that before. Um, and I'm just thinking about um, last week and the um, the person who shouted, you ain't no Muslim, bruv, um, which is obviously doing the rounds this week and people are writing about it, myself mm. included. Do you think he's part of the ulema, that he has seen something and is claiming Islam and saying this is not what it is? Um and then that's my first question. The second question would be, well, what does it mean to be a Muslim today? And perhaps drawing on some of your own personal experience about um, Islam in your day-to-day -day work as a barrister, um, I'd be interested to know, first, you know, you ain't no Muslim, bruv. Is that someone in the ulema? And secondly, what does it mean then to be Muslim today? No, I think that the comment that was made, firstly, I mean, the article I read today was that it wasn't a Muslim at all. It was by, it was by a non-Muslim. Um, so... You know, we've got to be clear on that. It was nice to claim credit for these things, but I don't think that was one of ours. But um, I think the idea of the ulema is that they are, you know, they are the the experts that you that you go to. So the in the past, if you look, you know, Muslim history, first centuries, these guys, you know, the Omar Khayyams of the world, you know, these were like amazing mathematicians, amazing poets, and amazing religious scholars. They, you know, they kind of knew everything. They were polymaths and they were, you know, real experts. 
so here's a guy who, you know, in the field of art with his poetry is, you know, he's renowned today for his poetry. At the time, he was just this genius mathematician. And he also had a lot to say about his religion. Now, they're the kind of people who should be, you know, in the vanguard of Muslim reform and ideas. They're the ones who can truly be called um, scholars. And sorry, the second element of the question was what again? Just remind me. Um, so the question was, what does it mean to be a Muslim today? And I guess for you and drawing on your personal experience as a barrister, how do you carry Islam through through your work and through your profession, I suppose? Again, this, to me, there's nothing complicated about it. You know, being a Muslim simply means that I submit to God. So really, you know, the idea is that you are mindful of God uh, you know, every moment of your day and part of your day is your working day. And so you're mindful of God when you do your work, which means you do it diligently, you do it honestly. And so in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm being a Muslim. Um, but obviously, given our situation and given the world's problems today, I feel there is an added responsibility uh, on all of us uh, to, you know, to do that bit more. You can't just in the modern world, keep your head down and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm being good and law-abiding and decent, and so that's enough. Because if, for example, you're in a position where you can articulate certain um, issues better than others, then, then maybe you should take that opportunity. If I'm in a position where I can speak up on behalf of Muslims and maybe uh, try and clarify certain things where there's uncertainty and people don't understand, then I should take that opportunity. If I'm in a position where I can try and exhort fellow Muslims to perhaps look at things differently, then again, I think that's part of my duty to, to take that opportunity. And sometimes you think that, you know, you're biting off a lot more than you can chew uh, in, you know, trying to fulfill all these roles and responsibilities. But I just think that, you know, we're, we're all tested. And that's made clear in the Quran as well, that, you know, life is a test for all of us. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be uh, about enjoy yourself as much as possible. We're all tested and tested in different ways. And I think, you know, for me, it's to try and be some sort of, you know, advocate perhaps mm. and, and try and deal with some of these issues. So I'm really intrigued about what you said. Um, you said, well, it's, it's quite easy. It's quite easy to blend Islam into um, your professional and your, your personal life. But the, I, I suppose there are some younger Muslims who question things and say well can I be Muslim and X so can I be Muslim and gay for example or can I be Muslim and work in a certain profession um, so what do you think is the biggest challenge for young Muslims today who go through that sort of questioning about whether they can keep their faith um, in the 21st century world I think for me the key is the lack of specifics in the Quran and so I would say that, you know, you know you've got to bear in mind that we, we believe that the Quran was the word of God, um, is the word of God, revealed over 23 years. Now, if, you know, God had wanted to reveal in those 23 years the one million commandments, he could have done. He could have just given us loads of rules and said, this is it, get on with it. But he didn't. And so it's incumbent upon us to consider why he didn't make it so specific? Why did he leave it a lot of things general? Why did he leave it for us to figure out? And I think it's because, you know, it is flexible. So when you look at the generality of it, you find that in essence, Islam is about belief in God and, you know, doing good deeds. The rest of it, you know, it, you know, pretty much varies according to 
you know, culture and understanding and interpretation. Now, for a young Muslim, I would say, well, you get those basics right. Believe in God. Know that you're going to be accountable for, you know, for what you do and, and try and do as much good as possible. That, to me, isn't complicated. The complications arise when you try to define that narrowly. And then, you, you know, you have people who come up with all the intricacies of religion about how, you know, whether, whether you should have a beard or not and how long that beard should be and all this kind of discussion. And I would say to young Muslims, listen, don't get yourself bogged down in that sort of detail. If that was important, that would be in the Quran. You look at those things that are there that tell you to be good to your fellow man, tell you to be kind, to know that you're answerable to God. And once you get those basic concepts, you know, I would say that that makes Islam very easy. Interesting. That that is that is a very interesting, and I, I like how it feels like what you're saying is very simple. Like Islam is a very easy religion. Um, do you think Islam is an accessible religion? Uh, to me, it's very accessible. But I think the problem is the problem is not. You know, there's a, there's a verse in the Quran where God says that He did not wish any. He does not wish any hardship on us, and yet you ask, you know, the 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 sort of the average non-Muslim whether or not they think that Islam is about hardship. And they'd say, yeah, it's absolutely about hardship. It seems like an impossible religion to follow all this praying and fasting and do this and do the other. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at those two ideas together of what God intended and what it's become, you realize that it's become what it has because of the way we've interpreted it. And it's it's the human agency. Now, to be fair, you know that doesn't just apply to Muslims. You know, you, you look at how complicated Judaism is, and you know there are all sorts of detailed rules and rules and regulations. But you know that's when humans get involved in the the process of religion, and which is fair enough. You know that's inevitable. That's going to happen as long as we are wise enough to understand that. Look, some of this religion now is as a result of human input. And I think that's where you know, a lot of Muslims go wrong, that they're not able to distinguish the human from the divine. Once you put it under the banner of Islam, it's like, all right, well, you've got to do absolutely every single thing that is under this banner without being able to understand that, well, actually, this was so-and-so's interpretation of it for that particular time and place or for his country. It might not be the interpretation that, that is applicable today. And, you know, that sort of ability to discriminate and and at times reject is something that a lot of young Muslims, you know, would feel very uncomfortable with. And so drawing upon hardship, I'm very aware that we're just under two weeks away from Christmas and Christmas can often be, you know, a time of enjoyment and a time of um, excess, I suppose. Mm. Um, what does it mean to celebrate Christmas or acknowledge Christmas as a Muslim? Um, for me, as I mean, in terms of our family, it's 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 time off work, time off school, so time that you can spend with your family, and which I would say is a very you know is a very you know Christian way of celebrating Christmas. And it's funny because sometimes you know you have Muslims who do you know look down their nose at the way Christians are celebrating Christmas with drunkenness and debauchery, uh, and yet you have Christians who say, look, you know that's got nothing to do with us. That's not how you know Christmas is meant to be, uh, and and that's right. And so you have to realize, you know, what the what Christianity says about Christmas and, you know, the birth of Christ and uh, what the religion itself is doing and what society's made it into. I mean, I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't intend this complete and utter consumer fest 
uh, every 12 months um, in celebration of his birthday. And, and yet, you know, that's often the way that Christmas has turned out, certainly in some Western countries. I'm not suggesting that that happens in every Christian country, but I think Muslims can be part and parcel of it uh, uh, if they were to use that time to reflect and to you know spend quality time with their families, well, I think that's probably the best way of celebrating Christmas. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a, it's always an interesting one. I've always been asked, well, do you celebrate Christmas? And I think as a very young child, I, I was in the mosque, and um, the imam said, if you have a Christmas tree in your house, you will go to hell. Um, and I think that's a very difficult message to hear, um, especially if you grow up in a Western country. And um, I've always wondered, well, why why has that been? And, and what what do you do about that? Because you see lots of people carrying around trees and then you end up worrying if they're all going to end up in hell, um, which is no easy thing to think about. Um, but I guess, do you do you have a Christmas tree? Is that something that you have in, in the Chowdhury household come Christmas no, time? No, we don't have a Christmas tree. And to be fair, we don't really do the whole presents thing with the kids either, because again, we don't want to make it into something that, you know, what am I going to get? Because they have enough of that with Eid, and we have two Eids as well, so they've you know they're, they're well stocked with presents, <laughs> and so and there's only so much room in the house. You know the the you know it's nice to see other people's you know Christmas decorations and lights. I've never felt the need to have that in my house. But having said that, at the same time, I this idea that if you've got a Christmas tree, you're going to hell. You know that's just complete nonsense. Mm. You know nobody goes to hell for having trees whether they are the christmas variety uh, <laughs> or any other and this is where again and, and it reflects the sort of you know the, the level of of education and knowledge mm-hmm. of that so-called you know leader who's saying that to his congregation you know what you should be discussing those things that matter it's the 21st century muslims have got a, more than enough problems on their plates and christmas trees are not among them Sure. Um, okay. Well, I'm just aware of how far we've got. We're talking for half an hour now. So, what one thing, if you could leave this podcast or end this podcast, what one thing would you want people to be thinking about Islam right now, given the current climate? What would be the one message um, that you would share with people? My one message is simply this: that Muslims are um, human beings at the end of the day, which means we have amongst our number you know, the good, the bad, and, and no doubt a few uglies as well. But we are, you know, flawed. All of us are flawed. And just because one particular group's flaws are hitting the headlines, you know, uh, at the moment, that doesn't mean that, you know, the whole 1.6 billion or however many there are of them have those flaws. You know, we do also have a lot of qualities, and it's only by engaging with each other that we get to understand you know each other's qualities and so what i'd say to people if i could you know have a parting thought it would be to you know engage with others and to be fair that applies to muslims as well as non-muslims engage with others and you'll find that you've got a lot more in common than you have separating you that's lovely yeah a lot more in common i think that's a nice passing message um wazir thank you very much for your time um and it's been fascinating to talk to you. So Zia Chowdhury, and he's the author of Just Your Average Muslim. Um, and where, where can people find you, Zia, if they wanted to find out more? Would it best be best to head over to Twitter or, or a website? There's a, a website, ziachowdhury.net, and I'm on Twitter at Just Your Muslim, Just Y-A Muslim. Great. Thanks very much, Zia. You're welcome. Thank you, Asad.